Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 19 of Cosmic Controversy. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to welcome Katherine Johnson, a geophysicist at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. She's a senior scientist at the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, Arizona, and she's also an expert on the planet Mercury, the innermost planet in our solar system. Johnson is a co-investigator on NASA's Mars InSight mission, NASA's OSIRIS-REx mission to the asteroid Bennu, and was a participating scientist on NASA's messenger mission to Mercury. A fellow of the American Geophysical Union, Johnson was awarded her doctorate in geophysics from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at the University of California in San Diego. She specializes in comparative planetary geophysics, but today we'll be talking about tiny misunderstood Mercury, one of the hardest planets to reach in our solar system. Johnson joins us from Vancouver in Canada. Catherine, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So unlike Venus, uh, which is out there for all of us to see so clearly on any given morning and evening, Mercury is much more difficult to observe as it's so close to the sun. It's only observable when, Catherine? So Mercury is actually only observable uh, for kind of two or three week time periods, a, a few times during the year. And it's typically, you can typically see it, it's a little bit like Venus in the sense, you can typically see it maybe for an hour after sunset or an hour before sunrise. Um, but it's very hard to see because, as you say, it's close to the sun. And so we only see it at times of the year when it's, uh, it's sort of as far as we were looking to the right or the left of the sun from us. And uh, so we see it typically in, say, the spring or the fall. It turns out we can actually see it right now um, in the mornings, I think for a couple more days. Uh, if you look in the early morning just before sunrise, which is not too bad at this time of year, it doesn't mean getting up too early. And then again, we get a chance in November. Uh, so, so it's it's more difficult to see than than Venus, but but it's worth seeing, and you have to look near the horizon to see it. So, unlike Venus, it really is is only visible for a few weeks out of the year. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, a few weeks, like two or three week time periods, and then there are a few of those during the year when you see it. So and just, it's easier to see at low latitudes. So, uh, okay. so, so those of you in the U.S. can mostly see it. People who are living uh, far up north in Canada have a little more hard time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But you can see the northern lights up there. So that's you, you that's right. That. We have a trade. <laughs> okay. So anyway, just a bit of history about it. It's likely that the first recorded observations were made around 1300 to 1400 B.C. by the Assyrians. And uh, because its apparent motion was so fast across the sky, the Romans named the planet after the fast-footed Roman messenger god Mercury. So is it wrong to say that, that tiny Mercury, barely larger than our own moon, may be the most misunderstood and least studied planet in our solar system? That's a great question. Uh, I would say that it's perhaps not the least studied. Uh, I would, in fact, say that some of the planets in the outer solar system are the least studied. So ones that we really haven't had the opportunity to see with spacecraft uh, very much at all. Neptune, Uranus, for example. Perhaps the, the most misunderstood uh, that might be right in some senses and that for a long time we've always compared, sort of put Mercury in the same like bucket in terms of planetary science as the moon. We've always thought about Mercury and the moon as being cold, dead, uninteresting planets and it's only really with uh, recent observations from the messenger mission that I think we've kind of really revised our, our thinking about Mercury quite a bit. So maybe we can talk about that a bit later here. Okay. So before we talk about the past and current missions to Mercury, let's cover some basic facts and questions about the planet. Uh, mm -hmm. Surface temperatures range from a low of minus 280 uh, to 800 Fahrenheit at the most extreme at the North Pole or at the equator. Is that right? Yes, we always, it's funny, I always have to think about this. We always talk about degrees centigrade in planetary science, but you're right. Mercury has massive temperature changes 
pretty much everywhere on the planet at night on Mercury, it is about minus 280 Fahrenheit or minus 180 degrees C. So depending on where you are on Mercury, the noontime temperatures are really quite different. At the North or South Pole, uh, the noontime temperature is about plus 250 to 300 degrees Fahrenheit. At the, at the equator, it's more like plus 800 degrees Fahrenheit. So imagine that, a thousand degrees Fahrenheit temperature variation between midday and midnight. You know, Mercury is so close to the sun that it's in three, what they call 3-2 resonance. Is that right? Can you explain that? Yeah. So Mercury has, so Mercury is, we do call it in planetary science, we say it's tidally locked to the sun, but it's not quite the same as the way in which our moon is tidally locked to the earth. So for the moon, the moon rotates once on its own axis for every once it goes around the earth. So we always see the same side of the moon. Mercury is in what we call in planetary science a 3-2 spin orbit resonance. And that means it spins three times on its own axis for every twice it goes around the sun. And if you spend a little while with a pencil and paper actually drawing this out, what you learn is that because of this, this funky resonance that it's in, one day on Mercury is actually two years. So the time between midday and mid and midday, midnight, and then the next midday, so noon to noon from like the equivalent of Monday to Tuesday for us, during that time on Mercury, Mercury has gone around the sun twice. So it's, it's kind of hard to get your head around to, to think about to start with, but it has some super interesting consequences. For example, uh, depending on where you are on Mercury, you might actually see the sun, I think, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about its eccentric orbit, but you might see the sun rise and set and rise a little bit again and then move towards noon. <laughs> or at noon, you might see it go backwards and forwards a little bit in the sky before it sets again. So it has this really, so a day is actually very long on Mercury. So one Mercury day is 176 Earth days. Good and gosh. one Mercury year is 88 Earth days. And that's partly why this, the surface can get so hot at noon and so cold at night, because it has time to heat up and cool down. But to be clear, the, uh, the planet uh, orbits uh, the sun. The solar orbit is something like 87 and, and some odd days. 88 so, days. Yeah, that's days, right. right. Okay. Yep. Where did Mercury form? Did it form where it is now, or did it form farther out in the solar system and then migrate inwards toward the sun? So that's been a, a point of discussion about, among planetary scientists for quite a long time. Um, you know, the, I think the current consensus is that it probably didn't form way, way out in, in our solar system. It actually turns out, so there's a lot of discussion in planetary science about how do planets move around in terms of their position in the solar system over time? And um, Mercury probably formed more or less where it is. It turns out that when you look at these numerical simulations for planets migrating, it's actually very difficult to get planets to move into the inner solar system from the outer solar system. But it certainly has this very different composition from overall from the other planets in the inner solar system. You know, it has this much higher percentage of, of metal to rock. Um, so it's very different. So it, it is likely composed of different sort of materials or a different makeup of materials uh, than, for example, Venus, Mars, and the Earth. Right. And we're going to get to that a bit later. But at mm -hmm. first glance, uh, Mercury looks stunningly a bit like our own moon with uh, mm -hmm. two geologically distinct regions. One is gently rolling hilly plains in the regions between craters, which are Mercury's oldest visible surfaces, which predate the more heavily cratered terrain. But its total surface topography is dominated by a, a giant impact basin, the Caloris Basin, which, if I'm not mistaken, is the largest such impact basin in the solar system, with a diameter of 1,550 kilometers. Um, the impact left a concentric, a concentric uh, ring system over 2,000 meters high surrounding the impact crater. And do we have any idea what caused that impact and how old it might be? 
So Caloris is really interesting. It's it's big, like you say, it's very large. Um, when it was first observed in earlier uh, uh, spacecraft images in the 1970s, and it shows up as a sort of a different, slightly different shade of gray in those images or in false color images, a slightly different color from what's around it. And you see this big circular center, which is very characteristic of of impact basins, um, it's actually not the largest in the solar system. In fact, South Pole Aitken on the moon is, is bigger. And Mars may, in fact, host the largest impact basin uh, in the solar system. One idea for the reason for part of the one hemisphere of Mars being much lower in elevation compared with the other, the northern hemisphere, is in fact the whole northern hemisphere of Mars might be a big impact basin. But Caloris is big, no matter what. Like you say, it's 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 very large. And uh, these very large impacts form early on in a planet's history. And one of the things that's very tricky in planetary science is actually having information on time. When did something happen on the surface of a planet? And one of the ways in which we do that is we look at the number of impact craters on the surface. If a surface is old, it's been exposed to impacts happening for a long time. So we look at impacts much smaller than the size of Caloris. And so if a uh, a terrain is very heavily cratered. We know it's old. And then we try to get some estimate of, is it just relatively old, but how old is it? We get some idea of that by essentially using what we know about the absolute ages of those terrains on the moon. And so when we look at that for Caloris, Caloris is actually very tricky because normally when you have an impact happen on a planetary surface, you make a hole. And then you scatter the debris from the impact around the basin. That's called ejecta. And we use the number of craters that accumulate on that ejecta as a measure of how old the basin is. Um, Caloris has not very distinctive ejecta. And so there's actually been quite a bit of work to try to figure out how old it is. But in the big scheme of the planet's history, it's old, probably 3.8 to 3.9 billion years old. So the, plant, the planet itself is four and a half billion years old. So it forms somewhere in the first 10 to 15% of the planet's history, much like many of the big basins that we can see on the moon, even with our naked eye, the dark patches on the moon. So it's, it's definitely very old. It's interesting, just to come back to what you said about the topography around it, one of the things that's very interesting about Caloris is it was recognized, like I said, in the 70s from image data. But in fact, when we went uh, back to Mercury with spacecraft in orbit around it and got topographic information, unlike most impact basins on the moon, it doesn't have this big clear low in its center. So its topography, although there's some topography around the side, it's the, the elevation of the basin is very muted. Its signature is very muted. Um, so it's good that we got image data first and we're able to recognize it early on. Could the Mercury have, maybe have once been a moon of, uh, of our neighbor Venus and maybe an impactor that, that, created, the, that created the Chloris Basin perhaps knocked Mercury into an inward orbit and out of Venus's influence of gravity? Uh, or maybe maybe that's why that Venus is knocked on its side and rotating in a clockwise direction. <laughs> so, so you could be a planetary scientist. Whenever we don't understand something in planetary science, we 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 try to invoke an impact origin. <laughs> could something have hit something to do something to explain the thing that we can't otherwise explain? So, um, so it, it's a it's a fun question. So. We can actually think about it in, in terms of the planetary science perspective. We can think about it kind of quantitatively. Um, so when we look at impact basins, there's, there's kind of a good rule of thumb just for starting out, which is if you see an impact basin that has a diameter of 1,500 kilometers like Chloris, then the impactor that made that basin, of course, it depends what the impactor was made of. Was it iron or rock or whatever? But in general, a rule of like one to 10 works in terms of size for the impactor. So the impactor that made Caloris on the order of 150, 200 kilometers maybe across. And something like that would be far too small to knock, you know, a, a big moon out of Venus's, out of Venus's orbit. 
Caloris is not unusual compared with many of the big impact basins on the moon. And in fact, the age that we have for it is very comparable to the age of those basins. And we think that at that time in solar system history, there were actually quite a lot of large uh, bodies left over that were actually impacting planets in the inner solar system. So the Caloris is there is kind of consistent with what we see uh, on the moon. However, your idea about an impact affecting the rotation of Venus is something that people have talked about, but that's a different question to Caloris. We don't think that would be related to Caloris. So um, Mercury though it also has the most eccentric orbit of all the planets. Um, if, if, if I'm not incorrect, am I, am I incorrect mm-hmm. about that? No, 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 this is good. <laughs> oh, okay. Do you have any idea why? Does anybody have any, any hypotheses why? Partly because it's likely that it's partly because Mercury is actually very close to the sun. And so planets that are further away from the sun have planets sort of inward of them and outward of them. And that try that those that that sort of combination that geometrical arrangement tends to make their orbits a little bit more circular. For Mercury, all the planets are exterior; they have orbits exterior to the orbit of Mercury, and so that can actually help you get a more eccentric orbit. One of the things that we uh, we don't know but can look at through numerical modeling is whether or not the that eccentricity in Mercury's orbit uh, has persisted over Mercury's history. So this eccentricity basically makes a difference of 50% in terms of distance from the sun, right? So during Mercury's year, it changes its distance from the sun by 50%. So it's huge. That's a huge, huge number, yeah. Yeah, the sun changed, the size of this sun that I mentioned earlier that can rise and set and, and, and rise again, right? Or that moves you know, around a little bit at noon, depending on where you are, the size of the sun in the sky on Mercury changes by 50% during one day. That's incredible. Yeah. So this is a very big effect. But through numerical modeling, what we think has happened for Mercury over its history is that this its eccentricity history has not been, it hasn't had this eccentricity forever. Its eccentricity has been chaotic. It could have been zero. It could have been bigger than it is currently. But because right now Mercury is in this 3-2 spin orbit resonance, it's uh, what we call quasi-stable. So it's, 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 it's quite stable for right now, right? It likes, they, planets like to be somewhat tidally locked. Right, okay. For the listener, Earth even has some eccentricity, not, not as great as Mercury, but isn't that right? Earth does have an eccentricity. That's right. All planets have some eccentricity. So one of the the sort of basics of orbits of planets around the sun, stars or or moons around planets or spacecraft around planets is that the orbit will be uh, what we call elliptical and how elliptical it is, whether it's circular or really elliptical. That's this eccentricity thing that we that we talk about. And um, how eccentric an orbit is depends on a lot of things, mostly the interactions with other planets or other moons and, and other planets in the solar system. Your orbits and rotations aren't, aren't completely stable over long time periods, even for the big planets. And so these, these change a little bit because of perturbations of other planets and things in the, even things in the asteroid belt, for example. So uh, prior to NASA's uh, Messenger spacecraft, which orbited the planet 4,000 times, and you were part of that team, the only craft sent to Mercury was Mariner 10 in the 1970s, and it imaged less than half the planet. Mariner 10 discovered that Mercury has a weak magnetic field, which may arise from an Earth-like electromagnetic dynamo in the planet's outer core. Is Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so Mercury is the only planet besides Earth known to have a global present-day magnetic field. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, yep. so like that of Earth, Mercury's magnetic field is dipolar, but unlike Earth's, Mercury's poles are nearly aligned with the planet's spin axis. Can you give us a little bit of a uh, understanding as to why, or do you know? 
We don't actually know that. It's a really good question. So one of the, I mean, as you said, the Mariner 10 spacecraft discovered that Mercury, that there was a magnetic field close to Mercury. One of the things that wasn't really firmly established from Mariner 10 was what the origin of that magnetic field was. Was it uh, magnetized rocks near the surface? Was it some strange effect from the magnetic field of the solar wind? People didn't really think that. Or was it this core dynamo process? And um, and with Messenger, because Messenger didn't just fly by the planet once, you know, once or twice, because it was in orbit around the planet, then you can map out the pattern of that magnetic field. And as you said, it's very dipolar. Another a thing that's strange about it is it's uh, very much aligned with the planet's spin axis. The only other planet that is uh, close to uh, that kind of geometry in terms of its magnetic field is Saturn. Um, but Mercury is even more what we call axisymmetric than Saturn. And then Mercury is also, Mercury's magnetic field is also different from the Earth in that it's about 100 times weaker if you were to stand on the surface of Mercury. So, it is really quite unusual. And one of the things that's really been of interest to planetary sciences is trying to understand how the liquid ion in Mercury's outer core, how is that flowing, moving around in such a way that it generates this different geometry of a magnetic field. And that's basically the mechanism by which a magnetic field is generated by the circulation of the planet's iron-rich liquid core? Yes, okay. yes. All right. But Messenger, the, uh, the and you were on that team, actually made a, a really interesting discovery, and I believe you authored a paper on this that appeared in Science, if memory serves. Messenger found evidence for an ancient remnant magnetic field. Now, now what do you mean? We know that, uh, that Mercury has a, a tiny magnetic field today, a present-day field. But what, mm -hmm. do you, what do you actually mean when we say remnant field? So volcanic rocks are, they're like little tape recorders for magnetic fields. So when volcanic rocks form and cool, uh, because they contain iron-bearing minerals, those minerals can actually align with a magnetic field if it's present at the time that the rocks form. And we see examples of this on the Earth in, for example, Hawaii. So if you were to go hiking in Hawaii, then, you know, your, your compass would, your magnetic compass would point towards the north magnetic pole of the Earth. But if you get, uh, go hiking and, and sort of get stuck in a, a big lava canyon or down the sides of one of the big craters in Hawaii, the big volcanic craters in Hawaii, then your compass might not be pointing at the global magnetic north anymore because these rocks are actually have little signatures. They're little compared with the overall magnetic field. But if you're close to them, you see how they essentially perturb the magnetic field reading that you're getting. The magnetic field strength where you are will be a bit different from the global strengths because there's this little plus delta extra from the, from the volcanic rocks and it might point in a different way. And so what we saw with MESSENGER was towards the end of MESSENGER's mission, the spacecraft flew much closer to the surface, so less than 80 kilometers above the surface of the planet and at the end, less than a few, and at the very end, at the surface of the planet. Um, but when it flew that close to the surface of the planet, then it actually detected these tiny little signals on top of this bigger signal, which even in itself is weak. Um, these tiny little signals, they're about 100 times weaker again than this overall field. And they're very localized. The way that you recognize them compared with a global field is they, they change as you fly over different spots on the planet. And, uh, and so the way to really be able to see those is to be able to have a good picture of this global field. So the fact we'd been in orbit already for three or four years, we had a good picture for this global field. We could subtract it from the observations and really sort of like detectives tease out these tiny little signals and identifying them as coming from the rocks rather than the deep core interior. That's an incredible result. And 
I quoted you in Forbes, and it was really a serendipitous kind of discovery. I mean, because you, you told me that if in the last few months of the mission, Messenger had never flown at very low altitude, we'd have, we would have never seen these magnetic field signatures. They're tiny and they're swamped by this global scale magnetic field that Mercury has today. And the other thing that's interesting, it's very difficult even here on Earth for geophysicists to detect ancient remnant fields, is it not? If you were doing the experiment in the same way, yes. Because, I mean, on the Earth, we can get a rock, we can take it back to the lab, we can <laughs> okay. look at it in the lab, right? right. Um, but if you were to do the same experiment and just look, if you just look in satellite data for the Earth, it's much harder to see the details of the of magnetized rocks in satellite observations because because you're further away from them, and uh, so yes, yeah, so it's a it's a difficult uh, it's a difficult thing to spot when the signals are are so weak like they are at Mercury. But you did you had no clue that you were actually were you hoping to find this remnant field when it went to low altitude or or was it just a really a complete surprise? We were hoping to see something and we, we looked for a while in the way. So one of the things that happens in planetary science is you sort of, you practice for things that you might see, right? In terms of the tools that you develop and um, ways of looking at data. And so we thought we knew how to look for this. And then I realized that we weren't kind of looking at the data or thinking about the data in the way that we really needed to. And it wasn't until we really filtered out these big global signals that you could actually see these these tiny little signals uh, so it 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 took a little bit of just changing your view <laughs> i always say in planetary science for missions we we kind of prepare for the unexpected we do all this preparation of do we have the tools to do things in a particular way and usually when it comes down to it you're just surprised by something and you really have to rethink how you'll actually look at, at that phenomenon. So why is the detection, let's look at the two different fields. So the one is mm -hmm. a present day field, which is only a tiny fraction of what we have on Earth, but it's still significant. I mean, it's still, I assume that the Mariner 10 team, when they actually found this in the 70s, were kind of blown away by it. And then, the, mm -hmm. and then uh, this uh, discovery by you and the messenger team of this remnant field, uh, why are these important? I mean, uh, Aside from the fact they exist, uh, what is their significance? They're really telling us about, indirectly, they tell us about how a planet is cooling over time. So if you have a present day magnetic, global magnetic field, like we do at the Earth, we do at Mercury, we don't at Venus and we don't at Mars. What you know, you know two things. You know, first of all, that part of the deep interior of the planet, the metal part, has to be liquid. But that's not a sufficient criterion to have a global magnetic field. That liquid has to be moving around fast enough in the core to drive electric currents. So it's a metal. And so when it moves, it's a, it's a, it's a conductor. It's, it's generating electrical currents. And from those currents result magnetic fields. And the best way to drive motions in a, or one way to drive motions in a, deep planetary interior is through the cooling of the planet. So it's like having a pot of water on your stove. You're heating it from below and cooling it from above. And the, and the water in the pot is, is convecting, is moving around. And so in the deep interiors of planets, that's one way to drive convection. Another way is uh, that liquid metal is actually a mix of pure of iron, iron nickel, and a little bit of sort of other things, a little bit of sulfur, maybe a little bit of oxygen, a little bit of carbon, some, some what we call impurities. And what happens over time is as that liquid solidifies, so in the deep interior, deepest interior of the planet, uh, so the earth, for example, has a solid inner core, the part that solidifies is pure iron or pure iron nickel. And so the light stuff gets concentrated into the outer liquid layer and the light stuff wants to rise. So it helps move that liquid layer around. So these two ideas about how you drive or two different ways in which you can drive motions in the deep interior are intimately linked to what the composition of the planet is and how the planet is cooling over time. So knowing that a planet has a 
magnetic field today tells you about, it puts some constraints on how, what the planet can have gone through in time because it has to wind up where it is today. And then if you detect something that can be related to the deep past of the planet, it tells you that also there have to have been conditions that supported a magnetic field then. So it's really kind of a probe of the deepest interior of planets. And then it's a constraint that gets combined with other things that we see on the surface, you know, the history of impacts, the history of tectonics, in terms of the evolution of the planet through time. A messenger was the first spacecraft to visit the planet in 30 years. It crashed into Mercury in 2015, ending a highly successful mission. It determined uh, the surface composition, chemistry, and it also verified the fact that, that Mercury does, interestingly enough, have polar deposits dominated by water ice. So that was a determination, I believe, in 2012, eight, eight years ago. And in fact, uh, Messenger's principal investigator, Sean Solomon, was quoted as saying that the volume of the ice was large enough to encase Washington, D.C. in a frozen block two and a half miles deep. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> no comment on that, but that, <laughs> the origin of the, I mean, it's incredible to think about. That's a lot of ice. Uh, so the origin of the ice on Mer Mercury is not yet known. So what is your best guess as to the origin of this uh, water ice? The, the impact delivered um, idea has gained a little bit of traction and uh, more recently than the original papers on the discovery in that uh, of the discovery of the water ice in that there is actually one crater of interest in the northern hemisphere of mercury that in fact is a potential candidate for having delivered a substantial amount of volatiles so water and uh, other things uh, that evaporate easily um, from the surface. Um, one of the, the tricky things in the impact delivery ideas is really understanding whether volatiles are retained during an impact. So if you have an impact into the surface of mercury, you know that the impactors typically for rocky or rocky impactors are moving very fast. So somewhere between 10 and 60 kilometers a second when they hit mercury and one of the things that happens is most of the volatiles are vaporized in an impact and so the question is do they condense and come back down to the surface or are they are they lost but the interesting thing is uh, you know the impact that made the chlorine chlorous basin if it had uh, if it were an asteroid loaded with ice and it came from the ice line of our own uh, forming solar system spiraled inward somehow it was knocked inward and it and it just slapped the hell out of mercury's surface creating this impact basin the volatile ice would have been water ice would have been lost uh, into the vicinity but then the gravity of mercury would have are you saying the gravity of mercury would have made it condense perhaps at the poles or maybe it condensed over the whole of the whole of mercury and the the bit that was at the poles uh, These are lasting. really good. They're really good questions. So, uh, you know, one of the big efforts in in sort of understanding impacts now is, has really moved from these kind of more simple scenarios to really understanding. So a lot of the work, for example, in trying to understand the origin of Earth's moon, uh, what we're finding is that in these big impacts, there is a lot of heterogeneity, so different conditions are not the same, like everywhere around the impact site, for example, uh -huh. or in all of the ejecta. And so you can have, for example, very, in general, you would predict very hot conditions that would vaporize everything, but you can have cold patches, for example, in the, you know, in the ejecta, in um in the region around the, the impact itself. And so um, there's a lot of work to try to understand, you know, what can go on during an impact. But the general idea is that, yes, some of that uh, volatile, uh, some of the volatiles that had been uh, essentially evaporated um, uh, during the impact would actually recondense before they left Mercury's gravitational environment. And, so and then the idea is that these, uh, probably migrate towards the poles over time. And uh, and so there's a lot of work on kind of 
surface migration of volatile material, you know, how can that happen? So you have a similar kind of process on Mars, right? If I'm not incorrect, where the ice can move around from the the mid-latitudes back to the poles, no? Mm-hmm. And in uh, Mars, it's a little bit of a different scenario because there are seasons on Mars. So Mars' is, uh, rotation axis is, is inclined, or Mars' equator, geographic equator, is inclined to its orbit plane. Okay. Um, and so part of that's a seasonal effect on, on Mars, and Mercury doesn't have seasons. Its rotation axis is actually uh, normal to the orbital plane. So... Um, so, so Mercury doesn't have seasons, but, you know, the general idea, of course, is it's harder to keep volatiles near the equator. And so over time, either they migrate or you just lose the volatiles that are near the equator. But the bottom line is that, that, uh, that Mercury's, uh, poles may, har- some of these uh, permanently shadowed craters at Mercury's poles, uh, may harbor ice that is what, uh, 3.8 billion years old. 3.9 billion years old. It could be billions of years old, or it could be just millions or tens of thousands of years old. I mean, most of the ideas, the ideas for the delivery of the ice related to the uh, polar craters are really about more modern delivery than, for example, the Caloris Basin. Okay. And that's in part because, you know, we don't know what it's we think that Mercury's probably had this chaotic eccentricity and obliquity history. Mm-hmm. So, um, so it's it's hard for us as planetary scientists to argue that these are also billions of years old, but they certainly can be millions or tens of millions, maybe even a hundred million years old. Okay, so probably uh, there was a Nature paper from March of of this year actually that posits mm-hmm. that uh, Mercury may have once been habitable actually generated from the Planetary Science Institute in Tucson, when would, it have, when would it have had liquid water? How early in the history of the solar system and how long might have this uh, microbial life persisted if there was any life? Uh, I mean, there's a, it's a long way from habitability to life, but is there any possibility that microbial life might still persist in the permanently shaded mercury craters? So, you know, my own opinion on that is that it's, it's unlikely just because, because of these effects about orbit and rotation that I mentioned, you know, earlier, that it would just be hard to maintain these conditions for really long periods of time. Um, the paper that you were referring to is an interesting paper because they were looking at essentially these kind of strange geologic terrains where it looks like some of the terrain has sort of collapsed, it has these collapsed features. And their idea for that is that actually the surface beneath that terrain contains some volatile elements, not necessarily water, it doesn't have to be water, it could be things like carbon, sulfur, that uh, escape in the gas phase when the, you know, when the surface, for example, is depressurized. So if you have a little bit of a tectonic event or in the past, if you'd had some volcanism. Um, and so the idea is that, that this surface collapsed because of loss of volatiles. And there's some tantalizing evidence that there's loss of volatiles today on the planet, these strange things that we see called hollows on the surface. And so there probably is some volatile material uh, beneath the surface. Um, But even going from that is very, very hard to sustain liquid water on Mercury. I mean, as soon as, I mean, just from our conversation about daily temperature variations, right? Just for one day, it's hard to maintain liquid water in the liquid. It's impossible to maintain it in this liquid phase. And so it's, it's very hard to do that. So, you know, the possibility of liquid water on Mercury, even buried liquid water, I think is um, is maybe an okay one for a sci-fi uh, book, but uh, I probably <laughs> wouldn't put too much money on it anytime soon. <laughs> okay. So what was a major takeaway from Messenger? Is uh, data from Messenger still being analyzed? Oh, yes, definitely. You know, when you have a spacecraft in orbit for four years, I mean, there's obviously things that come out right away that are the big, flashy new surprises. But there's a lot that you find when you delve into the details for many years later. I think the big, some of the big surprises, or not big surprises, big discoveries, of course, were, well, I'm partial to the magnetic field. um, But really ones related to the composition of Mercury. So the discovery that on Mercury's surface, there are actually 
a lot of what we call volatile elements. So things like sulfur, for example, and the combination of those volatile elements and also the fact that the surface, the surface rock on Mercury has very little iron in it. These things all point to Mercury having a, what we call a very reducing environment. So it's one where there's really very little oxygen present. And so the the sort of the conditions for the compositional uh, origin of Mercury are really quite different from the other planets in the inner solar system. The discovery of, of ice, of course, is a huge discovery. And then really just advancing our understanding of the interior structure. So before Messenger, we didn't, uh, we really didn't know how big the radius or how big the core of Mercury was. We knew it was very large, but we didn't know whether it was sort of 65% of the planet's radius or 80% of the planet's radius. And that makes a big difference in terms of, that doesn't sound like a big difference in terms of the core, but it's a big, big difference in terms of how much rock layer you have on top. And, uh, and so we've been able to constrain that much better with messenger data. So kind of a whole slew of things relating to the deep interior, you know, the very, very near surface, really about the interaction too of the solar wind with the planet. So Mercury is, of course, the closest planet to the sun. And so the solar wind conditions there are quite different from further out in the solar system. Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere, but it has this very weak magnetic field that sometimes protects the surface of the planet from the solar wind and sometimes doesn't. And so learning about those interactions is actually uh, very important, not just for our solar system, but for thinking about exoplanets. Okay. So the uh, European Space Agency's BepiColombo mission, in cooperation with the Japanese Space Agency, is now en route to Mercury as we speak. Uh, and in fact, uh, it just made it. It was just about to make a flyby. I think I sent you a press release earlier today uh, that the Bepi Colombo was uh, doing a gravitational assist at uh, at Venus. Either that's right. Either today or in the coming days. It's in the next week or so. Yes. Next week, you're right. And uh, so it just takes a to get to Mercury. I mean, it's incredible. It's you know, it is extraordinarily hard to get to. In the same way that the Parker probe was hard to send to the sun, I mean, because uh, you have to use these flyby gravitational assist flybys of Venus and Mercury, uh, Venus and uh, Earth rather, to actually put you on a trajectory that will put you into a Mercury orbit. Is that is that basically the gist of it? Yeah, that's the gist of it. So it's sort of the the it's almost the opposite to what we do when we go to the outer solar system, when we send spacecraft to the outer solar system. To go to the outer solar system, you use the gravitational attraction of Jupiter to essentially give your spacecraft a boost to get them further out into the outer solar system. When we want to go to a planet inward of Earth in the inner solar system, one of the things that we have to actually do is take the spacecraft that we launched from Earth, right? So to launch from Earth, we have to have an escape velocity of over 11 kilometers per second. And you wanna put it into orbit around the planet in the case of Mercury. And so it needs to be going much more slowly than that to be captured by the planet's gravity field. And so we do this in stages on the way in to Mercury. So you fly by the Earth and then you use the Earth to get you onto not just onto a new trajectory, but to change the spacecraft speed a little bit. And then you use Venus one or multiple times. And then you use Mercury many times, because even when you get to Mercury's orbital distance from the sun, your spacecraft is still going far too fast to put it into orbit around Mercury. You could do it if you were carrying a huge amount of fuel to essentially use to you would fire the rockets in the opposite way to the way you're going, right? You try to slow yourself down, but you can't ever launch with that much uh, fuel on board. You wouldn't get off the Earth. And so um, so it's incredibly difficult. And if you're trying to get into orbit around Mercury, of course, you're incredibly close to the sun. <clears throat> so you want to make sure you don't wind up in the sun. <laughs> so one of Bepi Colombo's goals is to characterize Mercury's internal structure. 
and geologists estimate that Mercury's core occupies about 55% of its volume, and Mercury's core has a higher iron content than that of any other major planet in the solar system. So what's the leading hypothesis on why? So Mercury's core, so just for, you know, people who don't think about this every day, so on the Earth and Venus and Mars to, you know, the first approximation is the core in terms of just the the size compared with the size of the planet is about half the radius of the planet or half the diameter of the planet. Uh Um, On Mercury, Mercury's core is 80% the radius of the planet. So we think about, you know, these inner solar system planets, we talk about them as rocky planets or terrestrial is the word we use in planetary science, but it means rocky and metal. But really, the better way to think about Mercury is Mercury is a metal ball with a little layer of rock on the top (laughs) around the outside. And uh, so the how this happened has been a Uh, big it was really kind of the reason one of the big reasons for the messenger mission was to try to understand did mercury start out like that or did mercury start out more like the earth and venus and mars with a much thicker rocky layer so it's rocky mantle and crust now or together about 400 kilometers thick was that much larger was that more like 1500 kilometers or so um and was that blown away by a big impact? And one of the things that Messenger has really shown is that these big impact ideas for removing, stripping away a lot of the mantle or crust of Mercury really are unlikely because the temperatures would have been so hot, it would have been really hard to preserve all these volatile elements that we see on Mercury today. So Messenger's made a lot of progress um, in this regard, but Bepi Colombo will be amazing because it's carrying uh, spectrometers, so things that can look at composition, both of the surface and then this Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere, but this tenuous atmosphere that results from uh, stuff on the surface being essentially put uh, into the environment around Mercury by the interaction with the solar wind. So be able to tell us a lot about the composition, a lot more details about the composition with sort of spatial resolution and tell us about some of the elements that we weren't able to see very well with the instruments on Messenger. So in terms of those kinds of questions, it will be very important. In terms of the internal structure, Bepi Colombo will really add to what we know from Messenger because Messenger was in a very elliptical eccentric orbit around Mercury so that the spacecraft actually didn't get too hot from the back radiation of Mercury onto the spacecraft. So so it had to spend a lot of time a long way away from the planet. And so it really was never very close to the planets in the planet's surface in the southern hemisphere and Bepi Colombo will do a much better job of that and so in terms of geophysics understanding its interior structure Bepi Colombo has a, a really greatly improved orbit around Mercury to be able to look at some of the unresolved questions from Messenger. The other interesting thing to come out more uh, in recent years and I believe this came from a, a Messenger result this is a Messenger result Uh, is that Mercury's crustal thickness is 25% lower than the most recent previous estimates. And oddly enough, contains very little iron in its crust. And that's strange because the interior of Mercury is known to be so iron rich. Uh, Any Mm -hmm. ideas as to why? Right. So the important thing uh, to know about estimating how much crust we have, what the thickness of the crust is on a planet is that if we don't have seismic data, we don't know the absolute thickness of the crust without making some assumptions. And so one of the uh, things that we're able to do with uh, better fidelity data, so we tend to be very conservative about those assumptions to start with, things like you have to have crust everywhere. (laughs) You can't have negative thicknesses of crust, for example, when we do the math solutions for these things. And one of the things that tends to happen, this also happened with 
for the moon, for example, as as we get more confident in our investigations. Uh, in fact, our estimates of crustal thickness get a, a little bit more towards the, the thin side. And that's also happened at Mercury. It actually makes sense for Mercury. It makes physical sense because so, although some of that crust could be very, very ancient, what we call primordial, dating back to when Mercury formed initially, so sort of a relic of original crust. Most of that crust is volcanic in origin. It's formed through later volcanism. And later volcanism is basically melting of the mantle beneath it to produce crust. And there's not very much mantle on Mercury. And so actually kind of dialing down the requirement for how much crust you have to make from the mantle, it's a lot easier for Mercury to have done that through time. So that so the thickness thing makes sense in terms of our physical thinking. The low iron, um, at first this was puzzling also, but in fact it works together with this uh, observation of having these volatile reducing elements on the surface, things like sulfur in particular. And it turns out that in this very oxygen poor environment for the rocks on Mercury, it turns out that iron, so early on in the planet's history, when there was maybe a mix of iron and metal as the core was forming, Mercury's iron core was forming, the iron was uh, uh, segregating from the rock, it's hard to keep the iron in a rocky, in a molten rock when you have these very low oxygen conditions. In fact, this low iron and these reducing conditions kind of go together, although it at first is really surprising because you say we have a planet that's way more metal than any other planet in the inner solar system, and yet the rocks on its surface are very metal poor. It turns out it actually all kind of fits together in a consistent story. So if if astronauts were standing on the surface of Mercury, uh, would it remind them of the moon? Do you think it would look like the surface of Venus? It would look more like the moon than anywhere else in the inner solar system. And uh, one of the things that we've talked about uh, quite a bit in the in our own community is you know, this very tenuous atmosphere. It turns out in that tenuous atmosphere, one of the things that's present is sodium. So sodium from the rocks on the surface. And you can see that sodium as, in fact, a tail. It almost looks like a comet tail behind the planet Mercury. You can see it from telescopes on the Earth. And so one of the things that we've actually talked about amongst ourselves is, would it be possible for an astronaut standing on the surface of Mercury, if you were on the surface of Mercury or just on the surface of Mercury with a lander with a camera on it, could you actually see the equivalent of, it's not the northern lights, but could you see this orange glow from the sodium in the sky above you? So that would definitely <laughs> be different from the moon if you were to see that. But uh, it's, it's even in the far future, it's, uh, it's not likely that astronauts would ever land on Mercury, is it? No, it's a, that's a really, really, really long way off. And um, it's a little too hot and too cold. There's not very much of that day that's in our uh, really nice temperature regime, right? <laughs> right, right. But as I noted in Forbes, uh, we're kind of at a disadvantage because there are no mercury samples in current meteorite collections. Or are there? No, this is sort of the, the holy grail of the meteorite uh, community that thinks about Mercury, right? Every now and again, there's a there's a little brouhaha about maybe there's a meteorite from Mercury. Um, and then, you know, people decide based on its geochemical signatures and other things that it, it cannot possibly be from Mercury. So, no, we don't. We don't have a rock from Mercury. Um, and getting a sample back from Mercury is going to be very, very, very difficult, right? Because you have to land, get a sample, get off the surface. I mean, we're seeing even from Mars, this is this has been a very protracted procedure. But one of the things we might be able to do is to land on Mercury and look, you know, in situ with a lander, autonomously, right, with a lander. And that would be the way to uh, to do this. What, what would we learn from either scenario, either a sample returned back to Earth or in-situ analysis of a sample taken on the, on the surface? Mm -hmm. So they both would be great things to have. Um, the in-situ analysis on the surface tells you about 
a rock that's actually there on the surface that you can look at on the on the surface autonomously, of course. But you have the nice thing about that is you have context for that rock because you have images from orbiters, and so you know you know where the lander is. <laughs> um, and hopefully you, before you land, you have an imaging of sufficiently high fidelity that you can tie what you're seeing on this really local scale to what you've seen in even orbital images, right? So you maybe get images while the lander is, is descending to the surface so that you get a picture at higher and higher resolution from orbit down to the surface. And then you look at your rock. So you know where your rock is, what its environment is. And so you can learn some things about it. But of course, there's a limit to the kinds of things that you can measure if you're on the surface. And doing things on the surface of Mercury, really, you have to, you would have to land sort of right around dusk, Right? And then you probably won't survive much after dawn. So, and our Mercury day is 176 Earth days. So, you've still got time to do things, but um, you're not going to be there forever and you're going to be working in the dark. And so, there's a limit to what you can do. But if you have a sample from Mercury, it's sort of the opposite. We can take our time in the lab, we can, you know, we can do all sorts of really detailed lab measurements on the Earth that we could never do directly on the surface, but we don't know where that rock came from, where on the surface it came from. We have to just try to kind of use all the information we get to get a best guess of it. So both are really important. And, and we work with, typically we try to work with both. And in the cases where we've been able to do both on the moon, both have been really important. So we're coming to the end of the podcast, but I just have a few more speculative more speculative questions <laughs> uh -huh. okay, okay so sure. uh, how would a, a better understanding of mercury give us a better scientific portrait of venus mars earth and even the moon so you know one of the things i always say to people is basically anytime we learn more about one planet we learn about other planets at the same time because we learn about how typical or atypical things are among the different planets. And one of the things I think we're learning more and more just with recent missions, the InSight mission to Mars, what we've learned about the moon, um, and what we've learned about Mercury from Messenger is that the earliest history of planets is very, very important. So for example, how much do impacts early in a planet's history contribute to their current composition to how much as you said how much volatiles they have you know what are the sort of late we call them late veneers what's the late veneer that can be delivered by impacts the more we can learn about that the better in the case of venus venus is very interesting because unlike the uh, the moon mars or mercury venus has no really heavily created ancient terrains on its surface. One of our ways to learn about the very earliest history of Venus is really just through what we know about other planets, because the record, the surface record of the first three quarters of Venus history has been erased. And, um, and so this, this early history, I think, is kind of a key thing for understanding you know, how different those early histories can have been and how they've affected the later evolution of planets. So how can Mercury help us understand exoplanetary systems that uh, might harbor terrestrial close-in planets? Right. Well, of course, you know, the fact that Mercury is our closest-in planet is really key here. Our discoveries of exoplanets are also planets that are very key very close to their host stars um so mercury is important in that regard there's some limitations <laughs> still in terms of the comparisons um but the other thing that i think is actually really important is understanding the interaction of the solar wind with the surfaces of of planets that are close to their host stars this is um i think this will be uh, this research from Mercury and Bepi Colombo is really well equipped to look at this uh, phenomenon in great detail. Um, this will be important for our understanding of exoplanetary systems. And so of the known exoplanets, uh, exoplanetary systems, of, of course, uh, 
you know, I wrote a book, uh, Distant Wanderers on Exoplanetary Systems, uh, some 20 years ago when, when uh, 51 Peg uh, uh, B was just discovered, the hot Jupiter, which is about half the uh, half the mass of uh, our own Jupiter. So the hot Jupiters we understand, and they can orbit on in, this incredibly short orbit, the uh, short orbits around their parent stars. But is there a system, an exosystem known today that has a small uh, rocky planet in a Mercury-like orbit? There's the, so the closest, that, that at least that I know of, was discovered a couple of years ago, 2018, I think. It's called K2229, so K2229. Uh-huh. Um, it's a two-planet system, and there's uh, one of the two planets has an Earth-like size, but its mass is much more massive than the Earth. So it indicates a sort of metal rock ratio that would be comparable to that of Mercury, not dissimilar from Mercury. So so it's similar in that regard. But the thing that's just really challenging for us, right, is all these all these Earth-like planets, they have orbits way inside the orbit of Mercury. So this particular planet that I mentioned, its orbit is 30 times closer to its host star than Mercury is to the sun, even at Mercury's closest distance from the sun. So a really different environment because it's much, much hotter, right? And uh, still we're nowhere near something that is that is really, truly similar. But we're getting closer and closer to being able to detect uh, those kinds of planets. And certainly there is at least one discovery of something that is Mercury, more or less Mercury-like in terms of size and, and its density. So do you think our Mercury's position very near the sun, and it's a G, G uh, dwarf star, uh, much hotter than the red dwarfs which we're surrounded by. Do you think that our Mercury is really, is, its position is really a fluke? I think if we look long enough, it, it won't be a fluke. But I think also, you know, as we look, even everything that we're looking at, things are very, really quite different from each other, right? We tend to put them in buckets of, you know, as we look at exoplanets, it's being similar. Um, but you know, when we look at our own solar system, we don't actually describe the Earth and Jupiter as being similar, for example, right? And so, um, so I think as we look more and more, we'll, the thing that we'll understand is really the continuum of planets in terms of sizes, masses, distances from the, from the sun. So what puzzles you most about our own Mercury? I think, uh, you know, for sure this you know, why does it, why is it just this metal ball? Why is it so different at such a first order level from our other inner solar system planets? Um, you know, I think that's, that's still an enduring question. We've ruled out some scenarios, but we still haven't explained it. And then if you ask me what I'd really like to know, I'd really like to know, does it have, does it have mercury quakes? <laughs> that would be a great thing to know. So, um, because so, that would be a great way to explore the interior. So is it still seismically active? Right? Is it still seismically active? Does it have quakes that, you know, you mentioned it has tides, I think, at some point. Um, right. Does it have quakes that are tidally driven like the moon does, for example? Um, this would be really interesting and, and would be really, if we could figure out how to build seismometers that could survive these intense surface temperatures, uh, that would be an interesting thing to know. So are you ever daunted by the fact that you are actually trying to figure out the evolutionary history of such a celestial body that has allured humanity since time immemorial? Does that ever go through your head? (laughs) Absolutely. I think, you know, I think if you work on, it's funny when you work on these things for, for a living, uh, you just get used to talking about it and thinking about it. And then the fact that we can actually see the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars in the sky sometimes is really is really humbling. And you actually get a little choked up about it sometimes, you know, because you look at it and, and what I think is how this dot in the sky holds all these secrets and these secrets really the fact that it's there, the secrets tell us about, you know, tell us about our solar system. But the fact that we can see these planets really inspires us as humans. And I, I guess I always think of the T.S. Eliot 
writing, right? You know, we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. So, Catherine, uh, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media? I <laughs> I do have a, a, a Twitter account, but I'm really bad about looking at it. So it's <laughs> at LocoCJPlanet. So L-O-C-O-C-J Planet. And I'm, I'm going to do better about this. <laughs> so uh, it's at, 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 can you repeat that? At LocoCJPlanet. Yes. Okay. So as always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Catherine Johnson, let's hope that the next time we speak, we'll have a swath of new data about Mercury. I hope so too. Thank you very much. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. Thank you. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM.